Hello everyone, I'm Nate Truex and you're listening to the Crockcast Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host Nate and today I'm joined by Dr. Kurt Schwenk of the University of Yukon. Kurt, welcome to the show. Thanks Nate. So you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you first uh, got into Herps and kind of what uh, led you down the path you are on today? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a you know, when I talk to colleagues and people who are into reptiles, most of them start when they're like little kids, it seems like. Like they can remember the first snake they grabbed and they always kept like a turtle, you know, and they were like toddlers, you know. I, I somehow, I didn't start that way. I just, but I don't know, I just, as I grew up all my life, I just always liked reptiles, you know, and I was really lucky and I grew up in the middle of the woods in New York State and, uh, at the time, anyway, there were tons of box turtles and black rat snakes around, and um, I always loved animals generally. But every time I'd find a turtle or a snake, that that would just that was just special, you know. So I just had I wasn't didn't have this like fanatical interest the way a lot of people do when they're very young, but kind of grew into it. And then I went to college, and I was actually planning on like becoming I don't know some kind of environmental person. And uh, I took a course, though, in anatomy, comparative anatomy. And the guy who taught the course worked, studied turtles, you know, which was cool, but not as cool to me as some other things. Uh, but then I had an opportunity to do some research. And uh, I, I don't know, I just started getting interested in lizards. It's, it's all, you know, everything, it's so interesting. If you talk to anybody about how they got into what they did, it's always just a series of accidents, right? It's just yeah. like, go back and go, well, if I just made a slightly different decision, something else. But, <clears throat> so I guess two things happened. I had a chance to do like a research project as an undergraduate. And um, then I, I was super lucky and I got a summer internship at the Bronx Zoo Reptile House. And uh, the only way I got that is because I knew a guy who knew the guy who had done it before me. <laughs> and so we kind of connected and he recommended me. And so I ended up in the reptile house, which was fantastic. Just an amazing experience. And, you know, working with the other keepers. And, and uh, I really got interested in lizards there. And I decided that the next year when I was going to do the research at school, I was going to work on lizards. And uh, so I, I got a bunch of chuckwallas from, from one of the guys who worked at the zoo, actually. And I got interested in their feeding. And I had an old 16 millimeter movie camera my father had, and I started taking movies. And uh, so I ended up with this, you know, not very good research report, but that just kind of completely cemented my interest in lizards in particular uh, and really peculiar stuff that most college students just do not typically get interested in, like how lizards feed, you know. Um, and I can't explain that, you know, now that I'm a professor and I advise students all the time, most students, they get to the end of college and they really have no idea what they want to do. They might be interested in animals or even herps, but they don't have such specific interests, you know, 
for some peculiar reason, I just had this really specific interest. Like, I want to study lizard feeding, which even today sounds weird, you know. Um, and so, what do you, you know, what do you do with that? You go, well, how am I going to make a, li a living <laughs> being interested in lizard feeding or just lizards, you know? And so I realized, like, my only option was to keep going to school because when you're interested in such weird stuff, pretty much you want to, you have to go into academics. It's kind of the only, yeah, I mean, there are other, obviously, there are some other ways and people, people could do really interesting things. This was the way I found. But before I did that, I went back to the Bronx Zoo after I graduated and I, I couldn't get a job in the reptile house, but I got a job. Uh, in the mammal department. So I spent a little over a year working with mammals, actually as a professional zookeeper this time, which was also an amazing experience. And I like mammals. I do a little work with mammals. Um, so I learned a lot. But I knew I wanted to go back to school. So I did. So eventually I went back to graduate school and I did my PhD looking at lizard morphology. And uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, I can go on about how cra it gets crazier and crazier, but I've basically been doing the same thing ever since. I mean, I've expanded my interests to other things, but I still work on lizards and I still work on feeding, but I also work on snakes. I work on uh, amphibians and um, I am mostly interested in feeding and also chemoreception. So I do a lot of work on tongue flicking. You know, everybody knows how snakes and lizards flick their tongues out. Um, and most people probably know that that's actually a behavior that allows them to pick up chemicals from the environment, either from the ground or surface or from the air. Uh, and they deliver those uh, molecules back to these little um, subsidiary noses they have called vomeronasal organs. They're also called Jacobson's organs. Um, and the only access those organs have or the only way molecules can get into those organs is through the mouth. The only uh, openings they have is through the mouth. So the tongue is just basically a collector uh, and delivery mechanism to get those molecules up into those sensory organs. And it's, it's weird. So they have some secondary sense of smell that we, we don't have. A lot of other mammals have vomeronasal organs too. It's not just uh, snakes and lizards. Um, but man, monkeys and apes and things like us don't have them. So it's hard to imagine what it is exactly they're smelling that way. But I've been trying to figure out how it works, like kind of at a mechanistic level. So, yeah, that's kind of the weird and bizarre story of how I got into herps. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I don't, I'll, I'll ask you. I'll bet you were interested when you were really young. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, always was interested in animals. Maybe if it wasn't for uh, accidentally turning on the animal planet, and I'm a grandparent's place and seeing a crocodile hunter. I might have been to birds. I might have been to mammals. Who knows? Yeah. But now I'm into reptiles. So. Yeah. Well, you know, you're a lot younger than me. And I wish I had had those shows when I was a kid. You know, like, I can't even remember. You know, I grew up with like Marlon Perkins. And I forgot what that show was called. But. There weren't these great shows like Crocodile Hunter and, and yeah, all and the cable stations, they're all animals. Um, I think I, I talked to a lot of groups of kids and I, I'm just blown away at how much they know from watching 
you know, PBS and all these shows, they're getting the ones who have a real interest in animals. They get super well educated. Um, so it, it kind of blows my mind. Um, so, yeah, I think you're kind of more typical, you know, starting out that way. I kind of came into it ass backwards. But, um, yeah, I, but, you know, I don't consider myself a herpetologist. I know people who are real herpetologists. Like, you can ask them anything about almost any herbs, and they can tell you all about them. I'm, I'm more of a, what they used to call a comparative anatomist or functional morphologist. So my interest is kind of more the anatomy and function, um, figuring out how things work, like how they feed, how they tongue flick, and all that stuff. And so I work mostly on lizards and snakes, sometimes amphibians, you know, doing other stuff. But I can't say that I have a real, like, broad knowledge I'm sure there are questions you might ask me that I'll, I might not know. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just feel like I, I can't claim to be a herpetologist the way I think of it. Um, you know, there are so many people that just know a lot uh, about a lot, you know, a lot, something about a lot of things as opposed to a lot about a few things. So, yeah. yeah. But Yeah, but I love learning about uh, comparative anatomy as well. That's like one of the big reasons I love crocodilians so much. It's like mm -hmm. you have all these weird one-off anatomical features you don't find pretty much anything else. Yeah, like I can't think of anything else that uses organ as a pseudo diaphragm. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. But you know, if you start getting into any group, you find those kinds of peculiarities. Um, yeah, crocs are the one group I've never done. I mean, I can't really tongue flick so. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they don't. Their tongues aren't that interesting. Which is feeding behavior, chomp. <laughs> yeah, well, but you know, that's kind of the central thing about crocs is this incredibly powerful bite, right? This this crushing bite, and that's kind of their whole strategy, which actually is kind of interesting because when you look at a croc head, and especially if you look at the skull, the the area where the jaw muscles, the jaw closing muscles are, is really small. And you go like, how do they generate such powerful bites? But then you look, you realize, next time you look at a, a alligator, or crocodile skull, who's around the neck? Up, yeah, yeah, the the neck and and also the lower jaw. The lower jaw sticks out way back behind the skull, and that's got a massive muscle. You know how crocs have these big jowls? Yeah, that's this big muscle called the pterygoideus, and it kind of wraps around the back of the lower jaw. And so basically their jaw muscles expand out behind their head. Um, and so, yeah, they can develop these incredible bite forces. Um, yeah. yeah, I had a former student who worked worked with uh, um, this guy Erickson down in Florida, who's kind of Mr. Crocodilian bite force. And he's done all the measurements showing how powerful they, powerfully they bite. Um, but yeah. yeah, I've never worked on them. So they are... You know, if you ask me about anything, I'm going to agree. Yeah, they're really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah. You know, there's just so many things you can spend a lot of time studying, but yeah. they're also really dangerous. So that's another thing. Yeah. Uh, so what, uh, did you study in a particular group of lizards for your PhD? No, I was kind of all lizards. So, you know, when you do any kind of scientific study, 
well, it doesn't even have to be scientific study. You can you kind of choose between being like super broad and comparative and looking at a lot of things, but in which case you're going to be a little more superficial. Or you can look at just one or a few things and go into super depth. I kind of go back and forth between both approaches, but yeah, when I first started with my PhD, I decided to take an overview. And, uh, you know, so you probably know from having looked at some of my background, but um, it's kind of always embarrassing to admit publicly that kind of the main focus of my research that kind of is the center of any, everything anyway is the tongue. And, you know, when you tell, I mean, listen, I tell other scientists that, oh, I study lizard tongues and they laugh, right? Because even other scientists who themselves work on ridiculously silly sounding narrow things, they think what I do is funny, which is really ironic. But, you know, the reason people specialize is because you have to learn a lot about a few things in order to be able to generalize. That's the, the goal. You ultimately you want to understand at least one system really well, and then hopefully you can apply what you've learned to understanding other systems. Um, but just to defend myself, it's the reason I got into tongues and I look at tongue anatomy and tongue function is because, well, for two reasons. If you look at, if you're interested in feeding in lizards, it turns out that the tongue is almost the most important part of the feeding mechanism. You might not notice that for a lot of lizards because, first of all, they tend to be small and they feed really fast and you can't see what's going on. But if you look at any iguanian lizard, so iguanas, agamids, and chameleons, everybody knows chameleons shoot out their tongue. Yeah, but they is, also have... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the projectile mechanism. But it turns out that even just plain iguanids that don't have projectile tongues and agamids, uh, which are related, um, they also use their tongues to capture prey. It's just not so dramatic. And sometimes it's so fast, you don't see it. But next time, you can just go on YouTube and find videos. Find a big, like a big green iguana or something feeding. And it's going, you know, blah, it sticks its tongue out. And it actually sticks the food to the top of the tongue and pulls it in. And right, and this is right down to the tiniest ones. Um, so I got really interested in mechanistically, like, well, how do they, how do they do that? How do they make the food stick to the tongue? Um, you know, so I start getting into the nitty gritty of that. And then it turns out, well, they also have to use the tongue to, to move the food around, to chew it. And then they have to use the, the tongue like a plunger to push it back in their throat so they can swallow. Um, so basically the tongue's involved in every aspect of feeding. And even in other lizards that don't capture the food with the tongue, once the food is in the mouth, it's all about the tongue again. So just understand feeding, I realized, well, I got to understand something about the tongue. I got to understand how it moves and all the differences between different groups. And then that's the second part of this. I started looking at the anatomy. And, you know, if you look at a man, like just stick out, you go, anybody who's listening to this, I urge you to do this. Go to the bathroom, close the door, nobody can see you. Look in the mirror, stick your tongue out, and just see how all the weird stuff you can, you can just move it around, change its shape. You can stick it out, you can move it in. 
And what you have to realize, what's so amazing about that is that the tongue has no bones in it, right? It has no joints, it has nothing. So typically when we move anything, we use muscles connected to bones and there are joints which act like hinges, right? So you can, you know, a muscle contracts, you can bend your arm. <clears throat> the tongue does all that without any joints or bones. And it's a very special kind of organ that are called muscular hydrostats, which just, it's so the way to think about it is imagine a water balloon. A water balloon's filled with water. It's got an elastic membrane, stretchy membrane around it. And water can't be compressed, right? If you squeeze water, it doesn't squish down. It, it just, it's incompressible. So if you squeeze a water balloon and you make it skinnier, that water has to go somewhere. So it makes the water balloon longer. And so it'll shoot out wherever you're not squeezing it, squeezing it. And that's the way tongues work. If you have kind of a thick tongue and there are muscle fibers that, that run across the diameter of the tongue, they contract, they make the tongue skinnier. And then it, as a result, the whole tongue gets longer. Uh, this is the way elephant trunks work and even your lips to some extent. And so there are other parts of bodies that work the same way. But this is a really amazing kind of bizarre way to move. And it can generate a lot of force too, right? Elephant trunks, again, no bones or anything, they can generate a huge amount of force. And I can tell you that because when I was a mammal keeper at the Bronx Zoo, an elephant once hit me with its trunk. It just, it unrolled it. It just went bonk like that, just unrolled it, hit me right in the head. It hurt. <laughs> I don't know I don't know why he did that, but the elephants didn't like me. I, I never worked with them. And whenever I'd get close to them, they'd like try to kill me or something. So one one actually almost did kill me. So but that's another story. Yeah. yeah. That's so that's the way tongues work. And so, you know, then I got interested in the mechanics of the tongue and everything and then it turns out i'll finish this in a second i know i'm running on it turns out you know well then you also look at what snakes and lizards do with their tongues and they tongue flick them and so i started well they're doing tongue flicking and they're using it for feeding so they're doing two different things with the same weird complex organ and it turns out the way they move the tongue when they tongue flick is completely different from the way they move the tongue when they feed so that means there's kind of a conflict there. Like, and if you look at it across lizards and snakes, you go, well, here's some lizards, like again, iguanas and chameleons, they've basically specialized the tongue and optimized it for all the ways they use it for feeding. But then you look at like monitor lizards and snakes and you go, well, those uh, animals, they've specialized the tongue not for feeding. In fact, snakes don't use it for feeding at all but they specialized it for tongue flicking and uh, chemoreception or smelling. So, and then you can find everything in between. So that got me really interested in looking at the variation, how that variation evolved and the different mechan, you know. So you, basically it's been a lifetime of research. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed, you know, with work with beard dragons and I have a uh, young rhino guan at the moment. I have oh, noticed that they, cool that do all basically look like a great value brand uh, chameleon when they're about to grab something. They yeah. all open their, their mouth a little bit and you just see the bud right at the very front of the mouth and just boop, boop. grab it. Yep. So, yeah, and yeah, so many people 
uh, like have bearded dragons now. And most people, you can watch this every day. So then I take that behavior. I have a high-speed camera, which is means high-speed camera means super slow motion. So I can get close-ups of these behaviors and really look in detail about how it's moving. And I also then do the microscopic anatomy of the, you know, and I look at all the individual muscle fibers and, you know, so I'm trying to really hone down on how they do what they do and then how that's different from other species. Um, so there is a reason why tongues turn out to be pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing I noticed that, you know, I've seen, I've seen uh, skinks, like especially like blue tongue skinks do this, where they also flick their tongues out kind of like monitors as well. Yeah. Almost, it almost seems to like hinge out from the front of their mouth like a, you see it like a frog or a toad almost. Right. It's, it, 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 well, yeah, it's not actually doing that, but it's funny you notice something different about them because blue tongues, I've worked with them, actually published a paper recently about them, and um, they do something really peculiar when they tongue flick that's different. I mean, I've seen a few other skinks that seem to do something similar, but their tongues are actually really wide and like flat and thin, really thin. But when they tongue flick it, I, if we were on camera, you could see what I'm gesticulating with my hands. They actually curl the front part of the tongue around and make like a, a little tube out of it. And hmm. so when they tongue flick, if you watch the tongue, it looks really skinny. Like it looks kind of like a snake tongue or a monitor tongue, but, um, but it's actually really wide and they just curled it around when they tongue flick. Um, I, you know, I can't tell you why exactly, but that's what they do. But it works. You it, sorry, what did you say? If it works, it works. Yeah, I mean, and they, they're also one of the only, uh, very few lizards that is not in the iguana chameleon group that sometimes use their tongues to capture food. So once in a while, other lizards evolve this behavior. And so we've looked at that in detail to see how it compares. Yeah, I have a couple of blue tongues myself, and uh, I, they're just fantastic animals. Um, so, but, you know, you mentioned like you thought maybe it was kind of like a frog tongue that's more. You, have you ever seen one do that weird display behavior where they. Yeah, right. Yeah. Just hang the tongue all the way out. Yeah, that that kind of makes them look like frogs because it, it they push it so far out. It looks like it's attached at the front, um, but it's actually not. It's it's kind of it's pretty much like other lizards, except for <laughs> that display is so bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. So did you say you have a, a rhino iguana? A little juvenile. Oh, wow. They are so cool. They are. Yeah. Uh, I hope he grows real big. Same here. Yeah. Uh, so do you have like a lab at Yukon that you keep lizards at? Yeah, I've got a very nice lab now. Um, just moved into a new renovated building. Um, I have a room set aside for the video and where I am permitted to keep uh, live animals now. Um, you know, when you do research on live animals at uh, any university, there, well, in anywhere, there are lots and lots of federal regulations that control, uh, you know, how the animals are kept and we're inspected regularly and you have to write uh, what's called a protocol, which, uh, says everything you're going to do and that goes to a committee and they have to approve it you know so basically there's a lot of red tape you have to go through 
uh, people making sure that you're not causing pain or suffering and all this, uh, which, you know, I completely approve of. So yes, but so it took a long time for me to be actually allowed to keep animals in my own lab. I used to have to keep them in a central facility, which was very expensive, but now we can keep them in the lab. We do our own care. Um, at, the, at this very moment, I don't have any live animals. Um, you know, I used to keep a lot of live animals around and I just found myself like spending so much time taking care of them. I just, I didn't have the time. So I've been kind of, I, I like, it's hard not to, because I love to have live animals around just to watch. I have the two blue tongues at home, um, but mostly I try not to have them in the lab, except when I have a specific project, you know, I'll write the protocol, I'll get approval, I'll bring them into the lab, we do the study, uh, and then we, um, you know, get rid of them. So I don't have to keep them around. But yeah, I love having them around when I can. Yeah. Uh, so with this uh, high-speed uh, camera work, have you done any like uh, videography for any like documentaries or anything like that? Uh, <laughs> it depends on what you mean. Uh, yes and no. So, do you, are you familiar with the um, the? Uh, I can't believe just the name flew out of my head. Zay Frank's videos. Um, I can't believe I just, I worked with Say and he's a friend of mine, um, True Facts. That's it. The True Facts videos on YouTube. I don't think I am now. Well, I highly recommend you do that because anybody who likes animals, um, Zay is for, well, he's done a lot of stuff. He's one of the pioneers actually of YouTube and online videos, but he's done a series of videos on different animals and animal groups continuing right to this day. And um, they've changed over time, but they're always extremely educational and informative, but also uh, very funny. Um, he does, anyway, he does a very funny narration. So I worked with him and if you um, uh, go to YouTube, we have uh, one of his videos that's basically about my research on feeding and chemo resection. It has ton, lots of my high-speed video so people could see that. Um, I think it's it's changed its name. It's usually called like, uh, I don't know. It, sometimes it's just snake and lizard tongues or amazing tongues. But if you just put in true facts and tongues, I think you'll find it. Um, I've done a PBS video that um, basically was also about, it was a short one. They have a series called Deep Look Videos. Um, that's about my work and there's a little bit of my footage in there. Um, the, the other thing I've done is I've worked with documentary filmmakers as an advisor, but not as the videographer. So those were videos about a couple things that were on the Discovery Channel and something that was on the Smithsonian Channel, but I was just the scientific advisor um, for that. So yeah, the one unfortunate, well, it's not unfortunate. Scientifically, it doesn't matter. In fact, it's better for me, but it's, my camera is black and white. So for, for television, people like color, but I haven't been able to afford a color camera yet. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I like working with filmmakers, but I'm not a filmmaker myself. I mean, I, I, 
I, you know, anytime people contact me, if they want to use my footage, you know, I've lent them footage for stuff. Um, but that's a whole nother thing. You know, that would be a whole different career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that outside of iguanas and gambits uh, and blue tongue skinks, not that many li other lizards use their tongues for, uh, you know, feeding. Yep. Uh, well, at least for prey capture. Yeah. Prey capture. So you want to talk about those other methods that other lizards use? Yeah. Um, so the only ones I've personally studied have been the blue tongue skinks. Um, and I, but I'm hoping to get a hold of some other ones because I want to start kind of comparing all the different mechanisms. Um, in some ways, so there's this, the, I'll tell you what the most peculiar one is that I've read about is these guys looked at some cordylids, this African group, like, uh, well, most people know like sun gazers from South Africa, the spiny ones that curl up into it. Yeah, yeah like, uh, was it smog or something like that? Yeah, yeah, smog. They changed the genus to smog. It used to be cordylis. Um, but yes, that, so that's a cordylid. They're an African group mostly, um, really. And then there's the related ones like platysaurus. Um, they're, uh, they're, they're not cordylids, but they're in a family that used to be considered cordylids. So they're closely related. So there's one of these cordylids, or there's a few species that seem to, again, occasionally, not always, capture prey with the tongue. And, you know, it looks superficially similar, though I haven't looked at it personally in real detail, so I don't know. But there's one that these authors reported, um, instead of using the top of the tongue, so, so typically what happens is the tongue comes out and the tip curls down uh, so that you get this kind of, uh, you know, the top, the top surface of the tongue is the part that uh, hits the prey item. And that's where all the mucus and papillae are that make it sticky. In this one cordylid, instead of the top of the tongue, they actually use the underside of the tongue tip. Uh, and they looked at it, the anatomy and showed that it has little papillae on it too. So that's really unexpected. Uh, and Clearly, they just invented their own way to do it. Now, none of them are as good at it as like iguanids and, you know, chameleons and stuff are. Um, they're just not as, uh, they don't, the, the prey item doesn't adhere to the tongue as effectively. They're not as fast at it, but they've just independently hit on a different way of doing it. So that's kind of what interests me is like, like it's kind of the same function, but they have different strategies different mechanisms to do it and so that's kind of what interests me um the blue tongues when they do it it looks again superficially kind of like an iguana <clears throat> the tongue curls around but like i said before the blue tongues have this kind of real broad thin tongue and as they curl the tongue around and contact the prey item you can actually see the tongue start to spread out it literally widens and gets longer you can actually see the little scale like papillae on the surface start to spread apart because the tongue again this is that muscular hydrostat mechanism the tongue is just intrinsically just becoming wider um, and it's kind of wraps itself around the prey it kind of makes a little pocket or a saddle uh, and it kind of humps up in front of the prey item and then pulls it back. 
Um, and that's, it, it's so it's like, it's almost like it has to hold on to it as opposed to just sticking to it. It looks like it uh, envelops it almost. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, envelop might be too strong a word, but it's, it is sitting in this little kind of depression with a hump so that like if the tongue pulls back, it can't fall off the front. When an iguanid, like, you know, again, your big green iguana or anything you're watching, they are so good at it. They only, they just need a little tiny bit of the tongue surface to touch the prey item. And it's so sticky that, that it, they can jerk the tongue back really fast. And the prey item uh, you'd think would just fall right off. It doesn't. And I'll just give you an anecdote about that. I had these little uh, phrynocephalus. They're these um, Asian, Middle Eastern, I think, uh, agamids. They're called phrynocephalus, means toad head. They kind of look like phrynosoma, horned lizards, not quite as extreme, okay. which means toad body. So these are toad heads instead of toad bodies. Um, anyway, cool little lizards. And uh, I was uh, watching one. Oh, wait, I'm wrong. It, maybe it was a, a phrynosoma. Maybe, it, anyway, it doesn't matter. It was a little toad like lizard. <laughs> I think it was a horned lizard now that I'm thinking about it. Anyway, I, this was a long time ago before there was high speed video, and we had to do high speed uh, 16 millimeter uh, film which was much, much harder to work with. Um, and when you're doing film or video, one of the biggest problems you have is keeping things in focus because either you don't have enough light or, or to, um, anyway, if you know about photography, you know if the diaphragm's open a lot, you don't have much depth of field for focus. So you have to stop it down and make the, the opening small to get any depth of field, but then you don't get any light. And so, you know, and it's so the the shutter speed is so fast, uh, you need lots and lots of light. So we have very a lot of trouble keeping things in focus. So I thought, well, I'm gonna you know take care of this. I'm gonna take this mealworm and I'm gonna put a tiny tiny dot of super glue on it and I'm gonna glue it down to the ground so it can't wriggle it away. That way I can just focus on the mealworm and I know right where the lizard's gonna be and it will all be in focus. And I thought that I used such a little tiny dot of glue that it, when he captured it with his tongue, it would just break right off. You know, it wouldn't bother him at all. Instead, the lizard comes running up, sticks his tongue out, touches the mealworm with his tongue, which, and then ordinarily he would just retract the tongue and pull the worm into his mouth. But instead, the super glue held, and instead of him pulling the worm into his mouth, he pulled himself the worm and he actually as the as his tongue retracted and he pulled himself forward he then flipped right over onto his back so I mean, it was hilarious but what that told me was that just that little tiny touch of his tongue was enough to lift his own body weight right so that would be yeah. like you know you sticking your tongue out and grabbing a a hamburger the size of yourself <laughs> and pulling it into your mouth. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable when you think about it. Um, I mean, I've tried it and it doesn't work. <laughs> I can tell you from personal experience. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, that's kind of the big difference. These, these, uh, the Iguanian group 
their tongue prey capture mechanism is so effective and so good. They're like super specialized for it. All these other ones, they've kind of, they've kind of just hit on it secondarily, and they're just it's interesting and they and they have but they have to do other things to compensate because they're not as effective at it so. yeah so i can't remember are chameleons uh related to iguanias at all or yes they... okay so that explains so they're, they're, they're close chameleons closest relatives are a gamids and then their next closest relative is iguanids so they're but they're all together in this one group and so you mentioned chameleons. I got really interested in, well, given that these other related lizards also use their tongues, how do you get from just, you know, sticking your tongue out a little bit, capturing prey that way, how do you get from there to this like- Rattling hook. Yeah. And so I've been studying that for quite a while and actually, so I've learned quite a lot. Um, and it turns out there are some gamids and iguanids that do this sort of slightly intermediate behavior um so that's been really interesting so basically i can kind of trace all the steps in the evolution of the extreme chameleon system um and uh I, at least we have a slightly better idea of how it happened now so yeah but chameleons i've been doing a lot of video of chameleons and the thing that's very cool about them to me, I mean, of course, the projection part, all of that's amazing, but that's been quite well studied, although it's still not extremely well understood. But what I got interested in is, well, how do they actually grab, you know, how does the prey item stick to the end of the tongue? Again, same. And usually people people just said, oh, they and they've even looked at the mucus and said their mucus is super sticky. They're just super really, you know, very, very sticky, like like a piece of fly paper. Now that's only a tiny part of the story because it turns out when a chameleon tongue hits a prey item, it um, even before it touches the prey item, it starts to change shape. And so it looks like a blob and then it starts to open up and it has a dimple. Yeah, so you can see this in pictures anywhere. And when it, it starts to flatten out and form like a suction cup disc. And when it hits the prey item, that kind of cup-like shape, it actually closes around the prey. And then you can see in slow motion, it doesn't just stop there. The prey item actually gets pulled in and the whole tongue wraps itself around. And it, it looks exactly like a pair of lips. It looks like someone's mouth that's just like wrapping around this thing and they hold on to it it's like they grip it and pull and then they can and then even though like the tongue you see now when they pull it back the tongue just hangs down as they kind of reel it back yeah yeah because if it was just stickiness it would they would probably lose a large prey item when it was just hanging down um but because they're gripping it that doesn't happen so anyway, that's another thing I've been studying is how that works. Yeah, I have noticed that, like just watching like nature documentaries and do have high sea footage of the insect yeah. as it's being grabbed. It yeah. almost look it almost looks like you took that insect and you just shoved it into a big piece of chewing gum. Yeah, that's that's perfect. Yeah. Well, you you noticed something that a lot of people don't seem to have noticed. I mean yeah. that really I think it's really significant, right? It's 
And again, it's that weird hydrostatic, muscular hydrostatic. It's all shape change. I mean, the tongue is radically changing its shape all on its own, all happening very fast without any bones or joints or anything. It's just reshaping itself. So, uh, you know, from an anatomical and mechanistic point of view, that's just fascinating. So I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, don't chameleons also keep their tongues, for lack of a better word, uh, coiled up on like a bone inside their mouth? It's like that. It's not the whole yeah. hyoid, is it? The hyoid, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So all lizards have that. Uh, in most lizards, they do have this little rod that it either goes below the tongue, but mostly it goes inside the tongue. But in most lizards, it's very slender. It's made of cartilage, and it's, you know, it's not a big, robust thing. In chameleons, it's this really stout, uh, well, it's both cartilage and some little bit of bone uh, that the, it just, the tongue sits on. There's the big mass that's the cylindrical muscle they call the accelerator muscle. That's responsible for shooting it off. But behind that is the retractor, the pair of retractor muscles. And like you said, they're all kinked up when it's at rest in the mouth. It's, it's kind of a combination of uh, folding and just like, what, what's the best thing? It's like a, if you took a, this paper cover on a straw and you ripped it open on one end and then you just slid it down and compressed it, you know, it, it just kind of kinks up along that the straw. That's kind yeah. of the muscle. So, and those muscles are also very special because they're, they have a special, um, uh, microscopic anatomy that they're called super contracting. So the, the contractile apparatus down at the molecular level is actually made to shorten more than typical muscle. So they can stretch out and then contract a great deal. So it can be a really long muscle and they can shorten it more than a typical muscle. Um, there's just every single part of chameleons is amazing and cool. Um, so most people have studied that all, con you know, projectile part. So yeah. I'm studying. I'm studying what happens at the end. <laughs> Got to find my own niche here. Yeah. Most people study the part from the chameleon to the insect. You actually study the part where it actually makes contact with the insect. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'd love. I wish I could show you video here because it's some of it's kind of mind blowing. So hopefully I'll get that out. At some point, actually, if you if you do look up that Zay Frank video on YouTube, there are some some chameleon sequences there. So yeah. check it out. I will. Uh, you mentioned also some iguanas and agamids that had kind mm. of a intermediary intermediary uh, uh, feeding behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me what those are, and can you also describe that intermediary behavior? Yeah, actually, I'm uh, I'm talking about things that are non iguana type lizards. So the iguana, so the iguanians, which is the name we give to the iguanas, agamids, and chameleons, they're kind of the specialized feeders. Um, and then the monitor lizards and snakes are the specialized tongue flicker chemoreceptors. But if you look at things like skinks and uh, teids, like, you know, tegus and stuff, uh, lacerodids, <clears throat> most of the lizards uh, in between those two extremes, they have tongues that, they're not super long and skinny, 
but they're not real thick and muscular and full of big hairy papillae. Um, so they tend to have, they tend to be kind of triangular so that the back part of the tongue is kind of wide and the front part of the tongue is narrow. And so the way I've come to think of it is essentially they divide the tongue into two functional parts. The front part, the narrow part, that's specialized for tongue flicking. So that part has all the anatomy you need to be a really good tongue flicker. But then the back part tends, it's larger, has more surface area. It, it has glands uh, in the papillae, which the front part doesn't. Um, that part is then the part that holds the prey or food once it's in the mouth and is what's responsible for moving it around, pushing it back into the throat for swallowing. So the front part's kind of the specialized tongue flicking part and the back part's specialized for manipulating the food while feeding. Um, and kind of all the lizards in between do some, uh, they're kind of variations on that theme. The most extreme example are um, the alligator lizard group, which is also where the monitor lizards are, but so I'm talking about Gila monsters, uh, Lanthanotus, the so-called um, earless monitor, um, alligator lizards in the family, xenosaurs, uh, shinosaurs, there's a bunch of different small families in that group. And they all have a tongue that literally, you, if you look at it like, if you took the tongue and just cut it lengthwise and looked at it like from the side, you could actually see the whole front part of the tongue is quite, it's narrow and the papillae on top are really low and smooth. And then there's a very sudden change where the papillae go from being low and smooth and having no glands. Suddenly they get real tall and are just packed with mucus secreting glands. And they used to say that the front part of the tongue was retractile, that the, it would actually retract into the back part. Well, that's not exactly true, but it's because of, again, that hydrostatic thing. The front part of the tongue is specialized to elongate. So when they tongue flick, they can elongate the tongue so it protrudes out of the mouth. They can flick it and then shorten it to retract it. The back part of the tongue, again, when the, once the food is in the mouth, and, and instead of using their tongues, they capture prey with their jaws, which is you know, most people think that's what all lizards are doing, but as we've talked about, some are actually using their tongues. But once the food's in the mouth, it sits on that back uh, mucus-covered part of the tongue, and it's manipulated there. So it's it, they really do me mechanistically and, and anatomically kind of have these two-part tongues. So that, those are what I think of as the compromise designs. You know, you either commit the whole tongue to being really good at protruding and tongue flicking, or you commit the whole tongue to being really good at feeding and not so good at tongue flicking, or you kind of do both, but maybe you don't do either one quite so well. Yeah. You know, it's like everything. There's always a trade-off, right? Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I find it fascinating, though, that they've all hit on these, like, oh, I'm going to do it this way, and you know, but the, everything's a trade-off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we haven't talked about uh, snakes yet, and those mm -hmm. are obviously very highly specialized for uh, flicking. Uh, yep. Want to talk about their anatomy at all? 
Yeah, so <clears throat> I they are again, I, I get excited about, you know, you start to, like I said at the beginning, any group you start talking about has these unique or amazing features. So snakes, we should remind your listeners, um, snakes are technically lizards. They're just a group of lizards that early on lost their limbs and became very specialized limbless lizards. And, you know, there are amphisbenians, there are, which are mostly limbless. There are lots of skinks. There are tons of limbless lizards. Snakes are just one group of limbless lizard that was the very successful, successful one. Yeah, yeah. A lot of species. So we single them out. But we should remember that they just, their ancestors were lizards. Um, so if you think of them, of their ancestors being lizards, even monitor lizards, which people always compare snakes to when they look at the tongue and tongue flicking. When you look at a monitor lizard, it's basically like any other lizard. Um, even the anat microscopic anatomy of the tongue, it looks like a lizard. Um, and in fact, monitor lizards, although they don't use the tongue very much for feeding, but they do use the, that whole hyoid apparatus, the whole kind of tongue and throat skeleton, which all lizards and snakes have. They use that uh, during feeding for swallowing and things like that. So there's still a kind of connection to feeding. Snakes, nothing. They don't, nothing to do with feeding. They've just said, we're going to have to figure out how to feed some other way. The tongue, we're just totally committing to tongue flicking and chemoreception. And so on the one hand, okay, it's specialized. They flick it. it it's pretty obvious when a lizard or a snake flicks its tongue and it touches the tips to the ground that you can pick up chemicals from the ground because you're physically touching. They, they actually drag the tips along the ground a little bit, and then they deliver those chemicals to the nasal organs. But here's the thing, and people haven't didn't spend much time thinking about this until a graduate student of mine started really wondering about it, which is everything we know about why lizards and snakes tongue flick is explained mostly by okay, they're picking up odor molecules, they're delivering them to the vomeronasal organs. And that's what we've known about snakes. I mean, this has been demonstrated since the, you know, early 1920s. Um, but no one's ever figured out why is it that when a lizard tongue flicks, it just basically it sticks its tongue out. Usually nine times out of 10, it will touch the ground and then it will retract it. So it, it's it's just one out, out and in, out and in, right? That's a single cycle. Whereas when a snake does it, it it's up and down, tongue, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, right? It oscillates it. So we call that an oscillatory tongue flick. And when a snake does it, a large percentage of the time, depending on what they're doing, sometimes the majority of the time, they never touch the ground. Sometimes they oscillate it in the air and at the very end, they'll touch the ground but many, many times they'll only oscillate it in the air and they never touch the ground. So obviously, well, some people have denied it, but it's pretty clear that, you know, lizards and especially snakes can not only pick up chemical or odor molecules from the ground, but also from the air. Um, although, you know, it's much harder to understand how they do that. So our initial idea or hypothesis was, well, for whatever reason, they're oscillating the tongue as a way 
to enhance their ability to pick up molecules from the air. That's just that's just a guess, right? Like, why else would you do it, right? So then the question is, well, what is happening? Why? How does it help? And maybe the way to think about it, why it's kind of a mystery, it's like, although it's not a perfect analogy, but if you imagine like taking a down pillow and breaking it open so you've got like little bits of down floating all over the air and and then you take your arm and coat it with honey so it's sticky right and you wave it up and down in the air and because you want to capture on your tongue especially your tongue tips you want to capture those little bits of down the fact is as you wave your arm up and down you're you're you create a little pressure wave of air in front of it as it moves and it actually will push those little down feathers away you're not actually going to end up touching them so you're going to get very few if any down things sticking to your hand and arm uh because you're going to the air is going to push them away and the same thing in theory should happen to odor molecules so so it's not intuitively obvious why waving it up and down really fast is a good idea and the only idea people had before was well they can sample a larger volume of air than if they just stuck it out once and that's probably true but i don't think it's the whole story so what my graduate student did a guy named bill ryerson i you know he was we were working together and i said look this is the problem we need to visualize what's actually happening when they flick their tongues. We want to actually see how, when they, they do that, how does it make the air move around so that we can, you know, come up with a mechanism. And the way scientists typically do that is there, there's a very fancy method called particle image, particle image velocimetry, which is a way you float like little tiny, um, uh, what are they little helium filled bubbles in the air and you you have to shine a laser light a, a sheet a flat sheet of laser light that illuminates those little bubbles and then something moves and makes them move and you film it, it it's very complicated those systems cost like i don't know hundred thousand dollars sounds expensive so yeah so we didn't have that kind of money so i said to bill you know this this is what you can do with graduate students when you're a professor. You say, figure out how to do that. <laughs> if you want to work on this, you're going to have to figure out how to do that. And he did. He's you know, a really smart guy. He figured out how to do it. He invented a system that ended up costing, I don't know, seven or $800, uh, which you know we could afford. And um, so we did it. And our system turns out to be just about as good as the $100,000 system, amazingly. Uh, we actually calculated all the error that was, you know, and it's, I think the professional systems are about 5%, we're at like 6%. So pretty good <laughs> for cheap. Um, so what this allowed us to do is we took a snake, we put him in a big aquarium. Uh, and instead of like helium filled bubbles, we use cornstarch. You can very fine particles. And if you like blow on it, all the particles puff up in the air. The bigger ones settle down quickly, but the smaller ones stay afloat for a long time. And we got a laser light source, put a couple lenses on it, makes this like two millimeter wide flat sheet of light, just illuminates a 
across the tank of this green laser light and all the little cornstarch particles in that sheet of light are brightly illuminated. And then we put a, a at that time, I didn't have a good high-speed camera, but we had a cheap high-speed camera. Put that in front so that that can take video of all the particles that are in the laser light. And then you stick a snake in, we hold the snake, and you gotta position the snake so that when he starts tongue flicking, just the tips of his forked tongue move up and down through that illuminated sheet of light. The camera then moves all the particles as they move. And then there's software that can actually calculate the paths of the particles, the velocity, and this thing called vorticity. And all that means is the extent to which they form uh, vortices or circles, ro rotating areas of particles over air. And so when Bill did the first experiment and we looked at the results, like it was one of the best moments of my research life because what I expected was just what you might guess, which is that when they flicked the tongue tips up and down, it would just cause turbulence like anything, that the, the air would just start mixing all over. And there are theoretical, you know, theoretical reasons from theory called fluid dynamics about why that would actually be a good thing for collecting odor molecules onto the tongue tips. That's what I expected to see. What we actually saw was not just kind of random turbulence, but this unbelievable, like perfectly patterned movement, where as the tongue went up and down, it formed these two, what we'd call standing pairs of vortices. So it's really hard to describe, but imagine as the tongue's moving up and down, uh, at the upper part, kind of where the tongue is swinging up, there are two little swirls of air and they're rotating each little swirl of air. They're side by side. They're rotating in opposite directions, counter current. So they're, you know, one swirling clockwise and one swirling counterclockwise. And then below those, at the lower extent of where the tongue is moving, there's a second pair of vortices and they're rotating also in opposite, not only opposite to each other, but opposite to the ones above them. <laughs> and in, uh, without showing you pictures, it's, it's uh, hard to imagine. But the result of this is that it, it's like, imagine having a little system of fans. These little circular patterns of air were actually pulling in air from the sides, like, like just drawing it in. And then when the air gets to right where the tongue tips are moving up and down, it created these little jets. So the air was either jetted up right in between the upper pair of vortices or down between the lower pair of vortices. So what it was doing was pulling air in from farther away, pulling it in and putting it right into the path of the tongue tips as they moved up and down. And again, I'd have to go into the fluid dynamics theory, but every piece of theory says that that should greatly increase the rate at which any molecules, including these very dilute odor molecules, should be collected onto the surface of the tongue. And you have to remember that the tongue is wet with saliva, so those molecules can actually uh, stick to that wet surface. 
they call it adsorption. Um, again, I you know I could go on and for hours and in great detail about this, but so let me just emphasize the bottom line. What we found is that instead of just creating random turbulence, they created these very controlled pattern of air movement that created a system that drew air in from much farther away than the tongue was and pulled it directly into the path of the tongue tips and increased the rate, theoretically increases the rate of collection of those molecules. So everything we found supports the idea that the advantage of oscillating the tongue like that is that you can very quickly collect in uh, and concentrate even very you know dilute molecules floating around in the air and then once they're collected on the tongue tip you can deliver them tongue tips you can deliver them back to those vomero nasal organs so that's we haven't proven that we have shown that everything they do is consistent with that that's all i can say at this point so snakes this is a mind-blowing thing you know i sometimes you see things and you almost can't believe that they're doing something so beautifully so perfectly you know yeah that's that's remarkable what are the same holds true in uh I mean, I imagine it was hold true in water with, like, say, sea snakes or anacondas or nerodi or something like that. Yeah, that's a very perceptive point because I've really been interested in what happens in water. So we've actually looked at nerodia tongue flicking underwater, and they do. So that's one of the weird things. You would think that this might not work underwater, but snakes do tongue flick underwater, including freshwater species like nerodia and marine snakes do it. Elephant trunk snakes, aquarists, they do it. <clears throat> so they seem to use this vomeronasal sense underwater. Whether they form vortices, we, well, actually, we did do the, the same method on Nerodia underwater, and we never saw them generate the vortices because, for one thing, they never tongue flip long enough to do it. It takes about three at least three oscillations to get the vortices going and typically they'll flick anywhere from oh five six seven to 12 or 14 times depending on the species uh underwater the neurodia would never flick more than like twice <clears throat> but that's also because you know we don't I, I i mean we think that that's probably always the case but you know these are experimental conditions it's very unnatural it's Hard to yeah. say sure what they would do on their own. But yeah, how so how and we don't even know if all snakes do this in, in the air. Because there are some snakes like big big uh, constrictors, pythons and boas. I'm not sure they might not do it. They we just don't know. There's differences in their anatomy. They don't oscillate the tongue as quickly. Um so that's kind of an open question. But you know, your typical colubroid snakes vipers anything else they're clearly all doing the same thing yeah speaking of vipers that bring brings another thing i was about to say about tongue oscillation my favorite thing <laughs> i just find it that's so interesting like say a, a big western diamondback is coiled up in defensive post right on the channel they'll just flick his tongue up and just hold his tongue up yeah they'll flick it down hold it down yeah flick it back up again 
Yeah. Is that like more like a display thing or is yes you're absolutely right so they do that as a as a threat or defensive display um yeah i mean i and they're not the only ones that do it like we've seen neurodia do that uh and when they do it it's really extreme like they really curl the tongue around and they do these very you know kind of jerky movements um so yeah it's some kind of visual display it's not and, and, you know, there are clearly snakes also use the tongue. Um, like, I think there's also a touch function, tactile. Uh, they use it to explore surfaces. When we've had, <laughs> when we have snakes that we're trying to get video of, we want them to do these like exploratory chemosensory flicks. But again, under laboratory conditions, some. Sometimes we'll put them in a little tube and they want, we want them to just come out of the tube and start tongue flicking. But they come out of the tube and, and they go, where the hell am I? You know, and there's these lights. And so they start bending their head around and they do what we call corkscrew flicks where they, the tongue, instead of just going up and down, starts spinning around like in a circle. And, and it's clear that they're trying to find a surface like, they were trying to see, well, how high up am I? Like, where's the ground? Where can I get down? You know. Like cat so whiskers. What's that? Like cat whiskers almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So clearly they do other things with the tongue. I don't mean to imply that chemoreception is the only thing. But when they're doing this, you know, mostly when they're moving, mostly they tongue flick, do exploratory tongue flicks when they move. Um Defensive flicks, the rattlesnakes, it's really distinctive. Um, there's also the question of color. Like, been interested in why a lot of snakes have, you know, like garter snakes, the tips are black, but the rest of the tongue is red. And it's red because it's engorged with blood, not because it's pigmented. Um, copper, copperheads, it's basically, there's no pigment. It's all just kind of red or pink. Uh, some... Uh, Eastern um, hognose snakes, it's kind of blackish, bluish, and has little speckles. <laughs> I mean, it's they're all over the place. Um, there are white tongue snakes. There are ones that have blue on them. It, it just, I don't understand why. What the difference uh, is. I remember I used, to, I used to have a pair of Dominican red mountain boas, and those things are so cool because if you ever saw the inside of the mouth, it was like the deepest purple color I had ever seen before in my life. No kidding. Like yeah. not not the tongue, just like all the the inside of the mouth. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. I need to get back into the, having those again. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I would see. There's, there's just a lot we don't know about that. Like with the going back to the blue tongue skinks. Well, why are they blue tongue? The tongue's blue and the mouth is pink, and they get those contrasting colors. We know it's part of a startle display, so colors are good for that. But overall. Like, you know, with the rattlesnakes, their tongues are almost always black. And somehow you would think that if this is part of a visual display, they should make them brightly colored. I, so, but they don't. So, you know, I, it's really hard to understand. It could just be like random variation. I don't know. So yeah. there are many, many things, even in this one, maybe some people might think silly system of snake and lizard tongues that we still don't know despite the fact that I spent my most of my adult life trying to understand them um, and other people too. I'm not the only one, believe it or not. Um, 
still a lot to learn. Yeah, I I might have a picture where I get at least a little bit of the inside of the mouth of those boas. I'll, I'll try and send to you if I have it. So. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so has there been any particular favorite group that you studied? Ah, boy. I think in the end, I would have to say the iguana agamid chameleon group is my favorite because I love the way they use their tongues to capture prey. They're also just tend to be kind of hunky lizards. You know, they're, I don't know, they're just the most kind of reptilian to me. You, you mentioned your rhinoceros iguana. I've seen uh, adult rhinoceros, rhinoceros iguanas. I even, I even compared photographs or images once. If you, certain rhinoceros iguanas look exactly, their, their heads, not their bodies, their heads look exactly like those dinosaurs, Pachycephalosaurus, you know those? Yeah, yeah. The bony. Yeah. It's amazing how similar they look sometimes. So they just have that kind of dinosaurian, you know, prehistoric look yeah prehistoric i just but you know it, it's hard for me to. i just I, everyone i find or especially if i see them in the field or alive i just find them all so fascinating i know that's kind of a cop-out but i i do have to admit that i tend more towards lizards than snakes that was always my first love kind of came to snakes later in life and i just i i find them it's almost like I have a I have a deep scientific interest in them, but aesthetically, like if I was going to have keep them live or as pets, I'd rather have lizards than snakes. But you know, there are snakes like uh, what is it? Try mark on the indigo snakes. You know, yeah. Like I once got to held a great big shiny black one. Oh my god, what an animal! Just couldn't believe it. Yeah. So you know. I mean, I love them all. I, I love the venomous ones. I, big, I, as at the zoo, I worked with some really, really big constrictors. Uh, we had a 14-foot king cobra at the time that escaped. That's all. We'd have to do a whole separate podcast on that. People, this is not this is not well known. It's funny. A cobra escaped from the Bronx Zoo reptile house not that long ago. It was a little one, like a I don't know, an Egyptian cobra or something. Oh, and it was all over the news, and there was even like a lot of jokes about it. That someone made a, like the snake had its own tweet, and it was tweeted anyway. And they, I don't, I guess they finally found it. But back when I was there, and this is like seventy-seven. So no Twitter. No, seventy-six actually. Um, yeah, we had a fourteen-foot king cobra escape from its cage. We did not know. Happened while I was there. We didn't know if it was even in the building. And the building, it was a Saturday, the building was packed with people. And when we, I was the one who discovered the snake was missing, we had to get everybody out fast as we can without saying anything. Because, oh, we're working on the building, everybody has to leave, and everyone was pissed off and trying to get hundreds of people out. And, and I was, well, the whole time I'm looking around, thinking any second this 14-foot cobra could come sailing into this crowd, you know. Oh, it was unbelievable took us three days before we found it and uh like i said there's a great story about it but I have to wait <laughs> i mean out of all the venomous snakes that escape to escape temperamentally from what i know kings might be the the least worst to get out but 
It's possible. I, I have to admit, I have never personally worked with cobras because they, well, I've never, never had any reason to, but they, they're the one group that really frightened me because they're, well, for one thing, they're venomous, you know, because of the neurotoxic qualities, like dying of respiratory failure seems particularly horrible to me. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and the fact that like a lot of them will climb up a snake stick, like you can't just stick them the way you can a rattle, big rattlesnake. They'll just hang, yeah. hang, but you know, cobras might just decide to come sailing up the stick, you know, so you got to have a clamp and, you know, hold your tail, you know, specialized methods for handling cobras. And yeah, I just, I don't like, I've been around them, but I, I wouldn't want to handle them or work with them. Um, so yeah, to give me a rattlesnake or a viper or a copperhead any day. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, so, yeah, I love them. All. Is it true that uh, venomous snakes have certain enzymes in their venom that help them track their prey after they've bitten it? Yes. Uh, well, it's been, it's been, technically demonstrated at least for one protein, I think it was a protein that they found was, they were particularly responsive to chemically so that, because, you know, most people know uh, rattlesnakes and most vipers uh, bite and then release, which is a very good strategy, especially if you're feeding on quite large prey uh, so that they don't, the, since the prey don't die instantly, they can injure you, obviously. So Rose can bite back. Yeah, yeah, and they do. I've seen rats. You know, if you feed live animals to your snake and the snake is in a tank or a cage and it can't get away, uh, you can they can kill your the snake. So, so yeah, they let them go, but they leave a chemical trail. But the question has always been, well, there's lots of like rodent trails all over. In fact, rattlesnakes, for example, will actually select. Uh, for a ambush site because it's right next to a rodent trail. So how do they know which trail is the one they bit? Uh, and so, yes, some people did identify uh, one particular chemical that's part of the venom that they seem to be able to single out when following the animal to wherever it died. Um, the other interesting question is it's been suggested and there's lots of evidence circumstantial evidence to suggest that the venom is full of digestive enzymes. So again, for large prey, if a snake, a rattlesnake, say, swallows a large prey item whole, uh, the digestive enzymes and chemicals in the, in the gut have to start from the outside. And they have so little surface area relative to their volume, it can take such a long time to digest them chemically. The idea was that they could putrefy and kill uh, the snake before it could digest it. And that has, ha I've seen that happen with lizards. If they're not given heat after a large meal, they, they can't digest the food. Um, but people have studied that and it's kind of equivocal. Some studies have said, no, venom doesn't make the prey digest any faster. <coughs> Pardon me. Other studies have said, yes, it does. You know, so I'm, I'm not sure what the answer is. Yeah. So, uh, do you do any uh, field herping in your free time? Yeah, I I try to find excuses <laughs> to get into the field. The snake work we've done, we've you know mostly collected 
our own local species. Um, and uh, I, and I have done some amphibian work and, and that's all field collected. That's our main excuse. Otherwise, um, yeah, I just go out for fun. Uh, I'm getting old enough and my joints are getting bad enough that it's getting harder and harder to be bushwhacking through the woods. But I've done that all my life, so it's pretty hard not to do it. Yeah. I've noticed, I, I'm curious what your experience has been, but I feel like snake populations uh, are plummeting around here, like where we used to find lots of things, even common things like garter snakes. They're really harder and harder to find. Do you Have you ever noticed that around you? I've never had good luck finding snakes in the first place. So, no. uh, if well, anything, they're, just not, they're not in high densities to begin with in the Northeast, you know, so... But I just feel like, I mean, I've been around, you know, doing this for 40 years. And just in that time, I've noticed a difference. So it's worrisome. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned you also did some uh, work with amphibians. Yeah, that's really, really unexpected for me. So um, I've been working with tadpoles. And I will freely admit that for most of my life, I just thought of all the herps around tadpoles, Frogs in general, but especially tadpoles, were just the most boring things in the world. You know, little larvae, every kid, you know, oh, look, it, you know, it's resorbing its tail and it metamorphoses. And yeah, I understand, you know, scientifically, metamorphosis, it's, it's fascinating, it's important, it's interesting, but I just aesthetically, like, who cares? Um, but I had a student once who wanted to, he was interested in uh larval salamanders feeding these uh do you have um marbled salamanders around you ambistema opacum we're up uh, it's actually a bit of a funny story about that uh so in high school i did have a i took like a gem bio 2 class so it wasn't necessary yet it wasn't a necessary credit so teacher was mm -hmm. free to do whatever he wanted so part of that was a uh, vertical pool ecology yeah great so but another te another one of the teachers at the school came in and told me they found marble salamanders on his property. And where I'm at in Ohio is actually a probably hour and a half, two hour drive north of their northern part of their range. Huh. So they're so they're like, oh wow, this is so cool. They start talking to him. It's like, oh yeah, I brought a load of wood up uh last weekend from inside their range. So uh, <laughs> that's exactly why you're not supposed to move wood. There's actually laws like here you're not supposed to bring wood like from Massachusetts to Connecticut or vice versa. Um, that's interesting. It's also actually, it's mostly, I think, parasites, tree parasites. They were emerald ash borer and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's also true that you, you can move. Huh? Well, we have, they're fairly, you know, people say, you know, they're supposed to be common around here. They're not easy to find, but anyway, they are around and they're larvae. They have this weird, you probably learned this in your vernal pool. They, I think the larvae hatch in the fall. I um, think they, they lay the eggs in the fall and garden over winter, if I recall. Oh, okay, that's it. And then they hatch first thing in the spring in the vernal pools. So they hatch way before like the spotted salamander and the tadpoles, frogs. And so their larvae are giant when all the other ones hatch and are small. And they go around and eat all the other larvae. So they're like vicious predators. And uh, so we were interested in them feeding. Uh, 
And so they feed on little tadpoles. So we brought it, we captured a bunch of little tadpoles, brought them into the lab, put them in the tank, and then we tried to get video of them eating the tadpoles. But this is why, this is just a long story for saying why I even bothered having tadpoles in the lab. And one day I was just sitting there, I don't know why, I guess I was waiting for something, and I happened to be sitting in front of a tank that had tadpoles swimming around. And I was just kind of, you know, they're, they're swimming around. It's kind of mesmerizing. And I was just watching them. And all of a sudden, one of them swam to the surface real fast. It swam up and it, it went bloop right at the surface and immediately turned around and swam down. And as it swam away, a little bubble came out of its mouth. I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. And I started seeing it again. And I couldn't figure out what they were doing. So I thought, well, I got this nice, you know, high-speed camera here. Let's try to get some video. And we looked at it, and it turned out they were, um, it was clearly something to do with breathing. Um, and so we, it was weird. And so I just figured, well, you know, people have been studying these tadpoles forever. They must know what this is all about. And I started looking at the scientific literature, and I, it turns out nobody knew exactly, other than the fact Everybody knew tadpoles breathed air, or most do. Um, but, you know, even I don't think I even knew that at that time because I knew so little. But turns out that most tadpoles have lungs. They have gills, they have lungs, and they take in the air through the skin. So they've got three redundant mechanisms for breathing, and that's strange. And then, you know, so they go up to the surface and they breathe air. And it, so most of the time, they swim up to the surface they break through the surface just like any air breathing you know a whale or something would do it so they breach it's called breaching they breach the surface they suck in a bunch of air and then they swim back down and so we watched this and we found that well they breathe in a mouthful of air then they actually and they close the mouth and then they squeeze the throat and the mouth and they push the bubble of air that's in their mouth and they force it into the lungs and you can actually see the lungs go bloop and fill up with air and then whatever air is left over in their mouth they blow out as a little bubble so that was the first thing and well that was interesting we kind of figured out that how they get the air in their mouth and then squeeze it into the lungs and then you know blah 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 but then what became really interesting is that not all tadpoles breach the surface. Tadpoles, when they first hatch, they're so little that they swim, swim up to the surface as fast as they can. They're swimming hard and fast, and they get to the surface, and it's like they hit a, a trampoline. Only the surface tension just bounces yeah, them back. The surface tension bounces them back. They are so small and so weak that they cannot break through the surface tension. So, but for whatever reasons, they have to breathe air. We don't know if they have to breathe it to actually for respiration or it might be for buoyancy or it might be to help them develop the lungs. There are a lot of different possible reasons. So how could they breathe air if they can't break through the surface? And so what we found is that they actually, then they swim back and they, Open, they have those little round mouth parts and they actually attach to the surface tension on the underside of the water and they suck. And instead of like breathing the air from the gas, you know, gaseous air from the air, they actually pull the surface of the water down into their mouths to make a bubble. 
inside the mouth. And then they close the jaws and pinch that bubble off. So they actually technically never break the surface tension. They just suck strongly enough that they can suck that surface tension down into their mouth to make a bubble, squeeze that into their lungs and fill the lungs. And then again, anything extra that blow out. So we started calling it bubble sucking. So we actually, and I, I love when you come up with funny things like, I mean, it's pretty innocent, but bubble sucking sounds kind of funny, but we managed to get that into the title of a paper we published about how tadpoles bu suck bubbles to breathe or something. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this was, nobody had ever described this before. So uh, my student went on to do a whole master's thesis and now he's working on his PhD. He's still studying tadpoles and breathing. Um, and we've, it's turned out there are, again, lots of interesting, I, this is, this could be another lifetime of research, just how <laughs> tadpoles breathe. It's crazy. There's again, variation, different tadpoles do it different ways. Crazy mouth parts have evolved that allow them to surface breathe. And also it turns out they surface feed doing something kind of similar. Anyway, crazy, crazy stuff whole separate type of research now we're doing on that. Yeah, but we said uh, for tadpoles is breaching. For some reason, I just thought of the those specific life as, but instead of the humpbacks breaking out of the water, just think of a giant tadpole instead. I'm telling you, it's I have video of big green frog tadpoles. That's exactly, and it, in slow motion, you know, it's like how, you know, when they want to make something small look big in the movies, they put it in slow motion. So I have these great videos of these green frog tadpoles doing just that, breaching up through the surface and then like falling back in. And it is, they do look like whales. So yeah, they're, so now I think tadpoles are amazingly cool. Just completely changed. Fleet 180. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I have to say, you know, if anybody's out there thinking about trying to find a career that allows them to do research. The, the great thing about research is that, you know, it's completely cure. If you're doing my kind of basic research, like you're not looking for drugs to treat cancer or something, but just about nature, basic research, what do, you know, how, what can we learn about nature? The great thing about it is everything you learn just opens new questions. Everything's a surprise and you have the freedom to just like, do a right turn and go. So I, I never in a world thought I'd be studying tadpoles, but here I am. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about? Oh God, you know me. I mean, I could, I could talk about any one thing for a long time, but I think you've managed to squeeze a lot out of me. <laughs> All right. So we don't want to bore your, your listeners too much. I saved the toughest question for last. Oh, okay. What is your favorite herb? Uh, yeah, this is unfair. You asked me before my favorite group. I, I knew, you know, I knew you were going to ask me this, and I actually tried to think about it a little before, and I didn't come up with an answer. Um, I, I think, okay, I think just putting it all together, my favorite is this weird lizard, Lanthanotus, the Bornean earless monitor. Solid choice. Solid choice. Okay. So a lot of more people probably know about them now because 
Well, unfortunately, they were illegally smuggled out of Borneo, which was terrible because they're extremely endangered. Um, but for whatever reason, some of them got into the Europe and the States and people have been captive breeding them. So I don't know how successfully. Um, I know that people have gotten them to breed, but anyway, more and more are kind of out there. Until then, there were almost no live ones available for anyone to see. But they are really bizarre and interesting animals. So, yeah, I think they're at the top of my list. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming on. If uh, people want to reach out to you, if you want them to, uh, do you feel, if people want to reach out to you, how do you feel like they should? Um, well, people are free to uh, email me. Um, I guess they could message me on Facebook. I, I do have a personal Facebook page. I, I actually don't do anything with it. I just keep it because I have a another page I maintain more for teaching. So, um, but you can reach me that way. Um, but if you just look up my name in University of Connecticut, you can find my email. Uh, and I'm happy to answer anyone's questions. Um, I'm, I get lots and lots of emails, so don't be pissed off if I don't get back to you right away. <laughs> I just get very busy. But um, yeah, happy to talk to anybody. Yeah, thanks for coming on. All right. Well, thank you, Nate. Uh, good luck with the podcast. Thank you.